Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. Welcome back to the 34 Circe Salon. In part three of our post-colonial Amazons episode, we talk about the kingdom of women and the warrior queens. Let, let me ask you a little more about the non-Greek sources. Uh, one of the things that uh, in your book that I, and, and also in some of the articles you've sent me that you've written, is this entity called Sri Rajaya, if I'm pronouncing it right. Is that the correct pronunciation? Sri Rajaya? Yeah, Sri Raja, something like Sri that. Sri Raja. Yeah. So could you tell the listener about that and, and about what we know about what, what, what they were, the legends of them, what we know about them? It was interesting. You also mentioned they're mentioned in the Kama Sutra, which was an interesting sort of side note. So who were the Sri Rajya or Sri Rajaya? Okay, well, Sri Raja means a kingdom ruled by women in okay. ancient Sanskrit. So uh, Sri being a woman, right? You know, Raj, think about Maharaja, right? You know, right. so Raj is a kingdom uh, you might be familiar with. And so um, they show up in several Sanskrit texts, one of them being the Kama Sutra. And the Kama Sutra focuses a bit more on, on the sexual customs, right? But, you know, the women are on top, right? Uh, but, um, but it's this matriarchal kingdom ruled by women. And it's somewhere over the Hindu Kush, right? So, again, in Central Asia. And so it kind of ties up with what we were talking about earlier, right? Tough women living, you know, over there in this nomadic area, and, uh, you know, the, among the Saramations, for example, you know, the central burials in the Kurgans that I mentioned earlier, 72% of those are of women. Now, they're not necessarily women buried with wow. husbands uh, because they're older women, you know, but um, it's the younger women who are buried with weapons among the Saramations. Uh, but these women are in the central burial, and we think that's a position of honor. Right, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and probably a ruler. Uh, and again, where, where is this again? What region is this again? This would be in southern Russia today, okay. uh, possibly going in, into Kazakhstan. Um, but you know, right along the border there of southern Russia and Kazakhstan is a place called Pokrovka, Russia. That's one of the regions where uh, these uh, warrior women are found, and in the uh, burials there, right, uh, in the Kurgans, which are these big group burial mounds that Janine Davis Kimball uh, worked on. Uh, and uh, Janine Davis Kimball argues that, you know, 72% of them, and, you know, this figure is from a few years ago, um, as, you know, she's unfortunately passed away. Yeah, great she's archaeologist a and author. wonderful lady, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, and we love her. Uh, but anyway, uh, yes, yeah, so... Um, but, but this is interesting, right? So, you know, we kind of see, and, you know, and the Greeks also talk about, you know, the Saramations being ruled by women, right? And so, uh, you know, are the Greeks and the 
ancient Indians talking about the same place? Well, it's possible, right? You know, yeah, maybe yeah. that there were tribes kind of across this whole area where, you know, women, women were at least, you know, had some equality with men, uh, even if they didn't, you know, rule over men like uh, all the time. But uh, yeah, you know. So that's, that's. Well, you know, we've, we've been talking sure. about matriarchy with, with uh, Vicky Noble and with uh, Max Dashu and, talking about how matriarchal societies are not the flip of patriarchy with women in charge. They're more egalitarian, but that um, women tended to rule in councils, that groups of women were the ones who sort of made the decisions for the society. So when we say women rulers, you know, automatically our mind jumps to like a queen and a hierarchical system. And, you know, it's entirely possible. And in fact, we are putting forth the idea that this type of woman rule um, or mother right is, um, is present in these uh, groups of people. Um, but, and that would, you know, that would certainly be in keeping with these women being buried in positions of honor, because if they were part of the ruling body of women, then yes, they would definitely be in positions of honor. But it is a, it's a different sort of system than like a, a queen in, in ruling over a tribe. Interesting. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and, you know, Councils were important in a lot of ancient societies. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, that's an interesting theory. And what I found, at least looking at this from a Greek perspective, is that the Greeks seem to think any place a woman had any sort of power at all was a matriarchy, right? Right. Um, they right. Use right? Um, which is the same thing, gynecocracy, right? Uh, you know, a society ruled, ruled by a woman. And so, you know, uh, among... In ancient Halicarnassus, for example, there's a queen named Ada, and, you know, she's in charge. Uh, you know, she's had a brother who was co-ruling with her. He died. And, uh, you know, but uh, Arian, a, a Greek author, says, oh, you know, this is she's representative of Asia where women rule over men. And so right. also kind of, you know, anytime a woman gets power, they just kind of see it as this reversal, right? And I think that's where the idea of the reversal. They're taking over. They're taking right. over. Right. And we still hear this today in politics, right? You know, it's just, right? unfortunately, right? Unfortunately, yeah. um, you know, I think we could just go back, you know, William Moulton Marston, right? The creator of oh, right. asserted mm -hmm. that uh, if, you know, that a matriarchy would be a better system of getting of excuse me a better system of government because women are more loving than men um you know and and while i, I i'm not going to say that's a universal truth right i just think it's an interesting right. yeah i mean women are not a monolith nor are men you can't say half of the population of the entire globe you know does this one thing i'm right. sure there are some exceptions <laughs> Right, right, exactly, exactly. He, he was he was a fascinating. We'll have to have an episode on him because yeah, he had predictions about American matriarchies in a hundred years, yeah. and he was the I guess the inventor of the lie detector and came up with all these theories about how what motivates men and women and lived in this kind of like Amazonian utopia. So that's a whole other podcast. But yeah, he's wow. a very interesting yeah. Guy. So what about um, some other sources? Uh, I mean, I know the, the Chinese mentioned the kingdom of women. How about the Chinese or the Persians or uh, some of the other non-Greek sources uh, for these warrior women, uh, noting yeah. or locating them? 
Good question. So the Chinese have some myths um, about a women's kingdom. Uh, and, you know, it's either in Tibet or in an island. And if I remember correctly, somewhere in the West, uh, which is also interesting because that's pushing it from China, if you go West, back towards Central Asia. Uh, there you go. And, uh, and there's two kind of versions of their story. One is that this is a kingdom of women only, like the Amazons. I mean, they didn't use that term as far as I know. Or it's matriarchal, kind of like what we saw with, you know, Sri Raja among the Indian, you know, legends or, you know, the Greek legends of the Saramatians being Unaiko Katia, right, ruled by women. Um, so that's another version of it. And, um, and they saw this kind of as a role reversal where the men stayed inside and did the domestic work and women went out and um, ran public affairs. Uh, and so that's, um, that, that's the Chinese and it's kind of similar to the, uh, as I said, the Indian myths, which is really interesting. Um, I just think it's so, I mean, for me, the thing that's that sparks what I'm trying to track down is the fact that they all, all these different civilizations, these groupings, the Greeks and the Persians and the Indians and the Chinese are all looking at the same direction. They're yeah. all looking at the same region, they're seeing similar things. And so to me, that's a really good indication if you're building a case that there is something there, something there which uh, lines up with a matriarchal or warrior women culture and civilization. And these, these groups seem to see it for a long period of time. And there's things in the archaeological record uh, that sort of backs it up. So uh, let's get over there and find it and let's kill this Let's kill this uh, slander against their possibly having been this civilization once and for all. Indeed. But anyway, that's my own. That's my own thing. So. Sounds good to me. I like the plan. I like the plan. Uh, and you asked about the Persians. Uh, so, uh, in terms of the Persians, um, they also seem to maybe have some women bodyguards. We know a lot less about that. At least I, I've encountered less evidence anyway in my research, uh, but, you know, they seem to have had a kind of similar custom to the Indians where, uh, and, and there's just a couple of texts, but one is um, by a Greek named uh, Heraclides, who, you know, is it's around 350 BC, uh, and he asserts that the Persian king, you know, the Shimonid king of Persia, ancient Persia, the great Persian uh, kingdom, that he, Persian empire, um, but he had 300 uh, women uh, guards who guarded him at night and sang to him. Uh, and mm. so that's interesting. And then there's another much later uh, text from, like, I think it's the 16th or 17th century of an English, you know, uh, ambassador of some sort who goes to Persia and also notes women guards uh, so much later in time. So also possibly, you know, a long durée. When I say a long durée, that's a French term meaning, you know, a really, you know, this is a kind of custom that we see for a long span of time. Hmm. Mm -hmm. What about some of the other, you mentioned in the book, there's a chapter on the warrior queens in this region, the Illyrians, and then of course, I guess the, the somewhat famous battle between, uh, if I pronounce her name right, Eridice, is it, or Eurydice, Eridice versus Olympias? And then the, the history of the Egyptian and Ptolemaic warrior queens. 
Okay, great. That's an excellent question. So, uh, you know, Illyria, which is closer to Italy, right? Um, modern Yugoslavia, I guess, are coming to the north of Greece, uh, is an area that was known for its warlike women in antiquity. And uh, um, Philip, who was Alexander's father, Alexander the Great's father, married an Illyrian princess. And uh, Data was her name. And then she had a daughter named Kina or Canaan. Uh, the name is spelled in two ways. Kina is probably short for Canaan. And Canaan was Alexander the Great's half-sister. What many people don't know is that Canaan was a fierce warrior herself uh, and went to battle. At one point, she killed 50 other Illyrian women in a battle against the Illyrians. They're her ancestors in a sense, but she's a Macedonian, right, fighting on her father's side. Uh, and then Canaan has a daughter named Eurydice, and Eurydice is a very interesting person. Uh, and to make a long story short, when Alexander the Great dies, uh, you know, Canaan has an idea that she's going to marry her daughter Eurydice, who is a royal princess, to the new king, who is Philip III Aridaeus. He's Alexander's half-brother. Uh, and his story is a little bit mysterious, but he had some sort of a uh, mental impairment and was really not super functional and was kind of a pawn of various different generals. Uh, and so what she does is she takes her daughter uh, to marry this king. And uh, so Eurydice, her daughter, winds up becoming the queen of Alexander's empire, which is a huge empire spanning from, uh, you know, ancient Macedonia to Egypt. Uh, all the way to what would be Pakistan today. And so uh, you have this woman, and she fights. She's a warrior. Um, there are stories of her, uh, you know, wearing armor and going into battle. Um, but the problem for Eurydice is that uh, Alexander also had a son, Alexander IV, and uh, his grandmother, Olympias, who was another strong uh, woman in this whole saga. Uh, Olympias uh, decides to march on ancient Macedon, and so uh, the story goes that the two women come out, right, in battle, and they kind of face off, right? They're generals of these huge armies, and uh, one Greek author says, you know, this was the first battle between two women. Probably not, right? But uh, I seriously doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, a Greek way of thinking about it. Uh, but anyway, right. you know, among the Greeks, right, you know, the first time we see two women generals leading. And uh, what happens is because the soldiers, the Macedonian soldiers, see Olympias, they defect from poor Eurydice. And she's eventually uh, killed, right? She's, you know, put into a jail cell and Olympias sends her hemlock, a noose, and a sword, and says, take your pick. <laughs> wow. And wow. he chooses the noose and dies like an Antigone of the Attic stage. Um, you know, right. which scholars would, are a little suspect of, of that particular thing, although, uh, you know, what a choice, right? Uh, you know, I don't know what I would choose. Maybe that would have been the easier way to go, right, uh, when you think about it. So, Good heavens, uh, yeah. Yeah, so um, they're very powerful women, you know. And, you know, the interesting thing is we don't see such powerful women earlier on in Macedonian history. Um, so some scholars have argued, okay, well, there's a bit of a power vacuum because Alexander's dead. His son is really way too young to, you know, 
uh, be useful, uh, you know, in terms of ruling. And they're just kind of pawns of different generals. Um, but, you know, it's very, very interesting. And then, uh, you know, Alexander conquered Egypt and uh, his general Ptolemy ultimately became the king of Egypt and the Ptolemies and their family ruled Egypt uh, for about 300 years up until the death of Cleopatra VII, the famous Cleopatra. And there are a number of interesting stories about these powerful women in the Ptolemaic dynasty, uh, you know, going into battle. My favorite one is the story of Berenike II. And so, um, you know, Ptolemy II was her father-in-law. And the story goes that, you know, they're, uh, you know, about to face the enemy. And Ptolemy II, who wasn't the most brave general, you know, decides, forget it, right, we're going to lose, let's retreat. And so he turns around and flees, and Berenike is like, what are you, crazy, right? So she rallies the troops herself, and she leads them against the enemy. Uh, and, you know, this is probably somewhere in North Africa, Libya, probably the details are a bit murky, uh, but she seemed to have been fighting for the throne of her own kingdom, which was in Kyrene, which is in Libya today. Uh, and anyway, so that's that's a really interesting story about, you know, a woman who takes charge on the battlefield and exhorts the troops. And there are a number of stories like that. Um, and uh, oh, there are tons of stories like that from all over yeah. uh, the place, from all over the yeah. globe of, you know, women yeah. who who uh, either chastise or inspire, depending on, you know, the situation, the troops when they are, you know, when they think they're going to lose and they're ready to run and then they go on to win the battle. So that's a pretty, pretty familiar trope, actually. Yeah, yeah. And that was a complicated story because in in the legend, the Greeks passed on to us, um, Ptolemy II has called her father and that was what was confusing, but it turned out that he had adopted her. And right. So, um, and there's a lot of other, you know, it was it was a difficult story to kind of flesh out when I wrote the book. It took me about a year and a half that one. Um, wow. Anyway, well, wow. the date of the marriage and just, you know, I was busy with other things too. But, uh, you know, it, it's and it's just really an isolated story that comes to us. But I think it makes sense because Berenike is also really, you know, she's called very daring in other sources, and her own son has her put to death because he's afraid of her. Right. right. Probably going to promote another son, uh, right. which, you know, had it worked, I think she would have been wise to do so. Uh, right. But anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> Family reunions must have been fun with that. Oh, game. yeah. Pretty brutal. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't eat or drink anything. Really? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I. Just kind of to, to, to wrap things up, I wanted to come to one last thing that had come up in the book that I thought was really interesting. We've talked here, with, I believe, Don, we've talked with Vicky about the difference between how sometimes American and British archaeologists will look at something as compared to archaeologists, say, on the continent or other parts of the world or, say, Russia. And one thing I noticed uh, that you mentioned, Walter, was that the Soviet versus American scholarship on Amazon's back in the old Cold War days before the wall fell was very different in terms of how they perceived the plausibility of these warrior women. Yeah. So what what happened, I mean, you know, the first scholar to really think, you know, hey, I've found 
evidence of Amazons was Count Bobrinskoy. And this is going back to, say, 1888 in Russia, mm. prior to the revolution. Uh, you know, and so he was, you know, because scholars assumed that if they found a skeleton with weapons, that they had found a man. And this right. probably happened a lot, right? I think there's a lot uh, of burials that, you know, we may have lost because of this kind of thing. Uh, but Babrinskoy really was an innovator, and he realized that you could sex a skeleton. And so that's what he did. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you might see- Can you, can you say what that is, sexing a skeleton? Yeah. Unless I, our listeners get the wrong idea. Yeah, right. determining the sex, not- determining uh, the, Yes, <laughs> determining the sex. Uh, you can look at the pelvis- uh, you know, and I think there's some other ways that you can do that. I mean, today we probably have more, you know, if you could look at the DNA, right, you could, you could probably tell more from that, right? Uh, but, you know, I believe he was looking at the pelvis bones and they're somewhat different. Uh, yes. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the head, right? Uh, and, you know, this is where I'm a historian and not as much of an archaeologist, uh, but, but it is possible to do that, right? And so he kind of, you know, led the way. And then what happened was, you know, so after the revolution, right, there's a real gulf between, uh, you know, and going into, you know, after World War II, there's a real gulf between scholars in the West and scholars in the Soviet Union. And in the Soviet Union, particularly in the 50s, uh, you know, they really start finding more and more burials of what they would call Amazons, right? And to them, an Amazon, you know, men of warrior woman, right? And, you know, they weren't necessarily saying that, you know, this was an Amazon tribe, but, you know, right, right. Amazon among the Scythians, among the Sarmatians. And so they had all this really interesting archaeological data. And uh, scholars in the West really weren't privy to this. And so they started developing this more theoretical idea that, oh, gee, you know, what the Amazons meant to the Greeks was a way of, of, you know, defining themselves through the other, right? And they developed this theory of the other, which kind of comes out of, of structural theory, structuralism without getting too deeply into it. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of about binary opposites. And so they're not really talking to one another. And, you know, finally the Berlin Wall comes down in 1989 and, um, right, uh, you know, the Soviet Union collapses. And so now there's more communication between scholars from these two regions. And so our opinion of this has begun to change in the West. Uh, but it's um, it's tough to get some scholars to really think about this, right? And, you know, there's a real damning review of my book, and I'm pretty sure the scholar didn't read the book. Um, okay. <laughs> so, you know, I try not to take it too much as an insult, right? Because uh, I didn't really seem to understand the argument. But, but you know, I could tell I really, you know, struck a raw chord, right? You know, and, uh, right, right. You know, and so what can you do, right? Uh -huh. yeah. New ideas. Can't gone. please, can't please all of the people all of the time. No, you can't, right? Uh, but, uh, well, of Thank you. Well, I, I think in wrapping up, we usually ask people, uh, as when they come on, we ask our guests, we say, you know, what is the one big idea? What's the big idea that people should take away from this? And what's the one more thing that they should do to follow up on it? Meaning, is there a book? Is there something they could study to follow up? So let me ask you, what would be the big idea takeaway people should get from your discussion today? I really think that there is a historicity behind the Amazon myths. And, uh, you know, and I do think that, uh, you know, warrior women existed and the Greeks 
uh, you know, understood that. And uh, the quote unquote myth of the Amazons is based on, on some historical fact. And we can see that whether we look at it, you know, from an Indian perspective or a Greek perspective or a Chinese perspective. Uh, that's, I think, the big takeaway. Nice. <laughs> and what would be your one more thing? What could people do once now that they've listened to this, heard this? What would you recommend how they go further in this topic? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I think there's quite a few things one could do. You could read my book. Uh, yes, let's say it again. Absolutely. I love this book, Walter. I genuinely love this book. It's a great Thank you. book. There's some other books by Adrian Mayer, for example, right? The Amazons. Uh, that's a good book that I think people would like. We, Adrian Absolutely. and I don't always read everything, but, but I think it's an excellent book. I would highly endorse it. And some other TV shows as well, you know, uh, that's more your thing. National Geographic specials, one that I think Adrian was, was involved with that, that are probably really good. There's one with Janine too, a Secrets of the Dead episode with Janine Davis yeah, Kimball. That's she an goes, interesting one too. Yeah. That's a yeah. great, great episode. Yeah. Highly recommend that yeah, to everyone. That would be good as well. So lots of things you can do to follow up. Yeah. Fantastic. How about you, Don? Is there any one more thing you'd like to share with the listeners? Uh, anyone who owns an attic or an old library, check through <laughs> those scrolls that you haven't identified yet, just in case there's a missing epic cycle in there <laughs> you I never know heartily agree. <laughs> and my one more thing is we're going to find them a sarah period so amen amen on, on that note i want to uh thank our wonderful guest walter penrose thank you thank so you much, so much walter thank you don and sean i really appreciate it thank you so much and thank you don as well this has been the 34 Circe Salon. Thank Blessed you. be everyone. Bye.